but that's okay. I've got lots of notes. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to start putting less verses on a page. I don't know, I'm getting to the point I can't read this. There's more stuff in there. The more I study, the more I find. <laughs> so, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. I think last week we, preached, we talked about this passage, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and we looked at all the implications of that. And then verse 6 explains why Paul preaches Christ as Lord. The reason Paul preaches Christ as Lord is for God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God shines light into hearts. And uh, what a marvelous description of conversion. This is what conversion is like. God shining light into hearts that were previously filled with darkness. And let's, before we go any further with that verse, I want to start with prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your uh, sons and daughters as the family of God, that we can open up the Scriptures together, that we can pray together, that we can hear the Gospel preached to us together, that we can worship in spirit and in truth together. And we don't take any of this lightly. This is a wonderful, blessed privilege, and we thank you for it. And as always, we pray for those who join us um, in other ways by listening on, on the website. We pray that they also would be blessed and uh, that they would grow in the great, in grace and knowledge of you as they part- participate in the means of grace And may they know that they're part of the fellowship, too. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Talking about people listening, I I talked to Keith Gentoff the other other night, and he sends his greetings. They're up north for the summer, or at least his family is. He's flying all over the world. But he'll be back in the fall. And when Keith gets back, because I wanted him here for this discussion, I'm going to have a special, either one or two Sunday discussion, depending on how long it takes, about the concept of separation. Because I've been in a dialogue via email with someone who's asking about separation, and there's, there, there's certain ways that we ought to separate, and there's certain types of separation, I think, that are false that God never intended. And so that will be a special thing that happens in September. I want to go through the biblical passages. Maybe uh, Keith and I were interested in sharing our experiences when we were extreme separatists, in a wrong way, and also, so try to try to find a balance about what we separate from and what we don't separate from, and how and how not. So that will be coming up in the fall. But for now, we'll get back to our passage, Second Corinthians four verse six. Light, God said, light shall shine out of darkness. This is an allusion to Genesis one three and four. So we're going all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis when it says that God created. And one of the first things that God did was cause light to shine out of darkness. So Paul is making an allusion and an application, and it goes like this. In the creation of the physical universe, God said, let there be light. He caused light to shine out of darkness. 
in, uh, in an analogical way, conversion is where God is doing a new creation. People who are converted are new creations in Christ. And when you become a new creation, it happens when God speaks and light shines into the darkness of our hearts. And we become new creations. And Paul will pick this up. Now, here he's making an allusion to Genesis. But we're in chapter 4. But you remember in chapter 5, he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So, So there's a thread here. There's an idea here that becoming a Christian is being recreated. And it also is to have God shine light. And he does so, and it's a, it's a very supernatural thing. See, being, becoming a Christian isn't just a, some sort of an initiation into a new religion. It isn't, you know, signing up or taking an oath or raising your hand or saying a little prayer. I mean, yeah, this is a redundancy for those of you here because you've heard this a lot. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of God that by, uh, through faith, by grace, God makes a dead sinner alive. And in this analogy, God takes a person who is in total, utter spiritual darkness, unable to see the truth, unable to appreciate the truth of the gospel, and he shines light, and this new creation happens through an act of God speaking. Because he spoke through the word, he spoke the word, let there be light, and he speaks through the gospel to create this light. That's why Jesus said, I mean, uh, Paul said, we preach Jesus as Lord. Why? Because preaching Jesus as Lord, and, and we talked about how that is, is uh, shorthand for the entire message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the personal work of Christ, is the means that God uses to shine light into the hearts and minds of lost sinners. So there's, it's really... Uh, uh, foolish to preach anything else, right? And, and as we've said, and again, I don't want to create a redundancy, but it's, it's so obvious that the soul seeker sensitive movement is a, is a movement designed to, to not convert people, right? Because the Bible doesn't say God shines light when people learn 10 ways to reduce stress in their life. Okay, that, that's not the light of God. Um, God doesn't shine light because people go to a seminar about how to be happy or the, the be happy attitudes. You got the be happy attitudes. <laughs> no, light is a supernatural thing that's, that's uh, caused through faith in the gospel. So he's, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God. Now, um, this is in contrast. If you go back to verse 4, you can see a stark contrast and give you a really good idea about what spiritual warfare is. Robert, when you, if you go back to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, could you read that for us? Just a few pat. We, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I'll start in verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. All right. So can you see the clear, how clear the spiritual warfare issue is? Satan is trying to keep the light from shining on them, is what it says. Blinding minds. So Satan's number one goal is to keep the gospel from people, 
to keep them in spiritual darkness. And so the battle, the battle is a war over the truth. Right? And anything, that's, what's, that's what fools people. Um, it, I'll tell you what fools people. It's not just abject evil, but it's good, good works and good deeds without Christ. That's, that's even a better trick from Satan than just unmitigated evil. And that was the uh, main point of that article I've been telling you about, Christless Christianity, written by Michael Horton. See, he, Horton claims, I think he quotes somebody else, that uh, Satan's goal would be to have everything nice, everything beautiful, no problems, no sin, no evil, and no Christ. Because then people wouldn't even know they needed Christ. They'd think they were fine. But the, the point is, the battle is, is the, over the gospel. So Satan is very open-minded. He doesn't mind putting somebody in total bondage to obvious, horrible sin. That's okay. He's, he, he's okay with that. He likes that. But he also doesn't mind somebody being a good person without Christ. Because maybe you're further from Christ being a good person without Christ because you don't think you need him. The point is, the battle is over the truth of the gospel. It's not over anything else. And so anything that would serve to get the gospel out of the pulpits of America would serve Satan's interests. And unfortunately, Satan is doing a pretty good job in this country. I don't know about the rest of the world. So God says, let light shine out of darkness. Satan's goal is to keep the light from shining in people's hearts and minds. Now, Paul's conversion is sort of a, uh, in a microcosm, an illustration of this in, in kind of a literal way. But remember the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, and then he recounts it as, as Acts goes on when he's called before kings and rulers. He often tells the story of his conversion. But there was this uh, confrontation with the light of Christ that shone on this sinner with a darkened mind who was an enemy of Christ and who thought he was doing God a favor by seeking the harm and demise of Christians. And so isn't it a, a beautiful story how God worked and outwardly, I mean, ironically, outwardly Paul saw the light, but the more important thing was the inward light. And God used the outward light as a miracle to point him to the inward light. Uh, let's see, what am I looking at my notes here? Oh, remember earlier, now, just put, always putting things back in context, remember the idea of being veiled? And how Moses had to be veiled when he came down and people couldn't see the glory shining on his face? And when he, when he turned to the Lord, literally, he went up and to talk to God, and then he took the veil off and he talked to God, and then he put it on and he came down. And then Paul said, well, Satan veils. Our gospel's not veiled because we're very clear about it, but Satan veils it when he blinds minds. So then he says, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. He said that. And so here, this idea again is the veil is removed and now light can come in. Now uh, those who are blinded by Satan, uh, those who are... Uh, were veiled, whatever illusion you want to use, now see uh, light, and they do so because of the clarity of the gospel. 
Okay, now I have a bunch of cross-references and then some citations. Do you mind reading? No, not at all. What's your name? Chad. Chad? Yep. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, if you could read Exodus 33, 18 to 23. It's kind of a long section, but it's about Moses going up on a mountain. Exodus 33. And then, Denise, if you could read Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Um, Marcus, you want to read? Sure. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. I'll just, we'll start with those, and I have some more verses. There's a mic that we pass around so that people can hear. Uh, Isaiah 33, 18 to 23. Exodus. And he said, please show me your glory. (laughs) Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on a rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so the glory of God was so great that even Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. I think there's an old hymn about that, isn't there? Hidden in the cleft of the rock so that you're safe <laughs> in God's presence. And so Moses, uh, no, notice in, in that passage, excuse me, <clears throat> notice in the passage that Chad read is the, the idea that I will declare my name. So when God's presence and His glory were manifested to Moses, it's synonymous with declaring my name. And that gives us a really good insight in the use of the idea of the name. And some people misunderstand it, and they think the name is like a secret word that if you utter it, you get what you want. Have you heard that? There's people on TV preaching that. Um, just, you know the name, you say the name, you get what you want. Well, the name, as you can see in that passage, was synonymous with the person of God. God was revealing his person, his character, his character qualities, his divine nature to Moses. And, uh, and later, I think, I think when you read this, Denise, we'll get a little better idea. The next, in the next chapter, in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, I think it'll, uh, it'll help us. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father there fathers upon the children and the children's children in the third and fourth generation. Okay, so you notice there, again, when he talks about the name, then it goes on with the list of God's attributes, right? Full of mercy, truth, uh, and then justice, mercy and justice. In other words, he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, but he by no means acquits the wicked just because he decides not to be just. The only way to be acquitted is if the justice of God falls on Christ in our, uh, rather than us. So the name, the, the self-revelation of God, his name is a revelation 
of his person and character. Now, I'm going to be preaching on the, some more of the plagues uh, during church at 10.30 or whenever it's time to preach, more like 11. And there you see the same idea. God's mighty acts, according to Exodus, are a revelation of his name. That you'll know I am Yahweh, I shall do these things. And then even Pharaoh comes to know more about God. Pharaoh finds out, uh, God says, that you know that I am God of the land. I'm, I'm the Lord in the land here. And that's a shock to Pharaoh because they had a whole bunch of different gods that had territories. And, he, and Pharaoh was quite certain that the God of the Hebrews had no jurisdiction. <laughs> okay? No, 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 no. You're not the God of the land. And we had the frogs and, the <laughs> and, and all these different gods. Uh, and so when God did the plagues that just showed a power and authority, there was a revelation of his person as being the God over the entire earth, not just limited like the pagan gods to certain territories. So there's a self-revelation of God, and that's what the name is. So uh, when this passage says, light shall shine out of darkness, when we believe the gospel and meet this God that we had only heard about with our ears, if we heard it all. If you grew up in America, you probably at least heard something about Christianity somewhere, if you, uh, although usually kind of a distorted version of it. If, if, you, if you learned everything you, you know about Christianity on the TV, that would be not very good. <laughs> okay. Because um, the, the more distorted someone's doctrine is, it almost seems like it's more likely they're going to land on TV. But uh, that's not universally true, but it's common. But what happens is when you, when you meet the God that you heard about, then the light of God shines into your heart and you begin to understand the glory. You understand the name, the, the, the character of God as the one who has revealed himself. So let's, having said that, let's go to uh, a passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah was given uh, a vision of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. And, uh, Hello. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The one who cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <laughs> Amen. Very famous. Uh, there's a hymn written based on that passage too. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> and why holy three times? Do you think that there's an... Uh, an understanding of the Trinity in that? A lot of people do. The thrice holy God. And Isaiah, as you probably know, if you, right after that self-revelation of God, he says, woe unto me, because he understands his own sinfulness. And so Moses was a sinner, so he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock when the Lord passed by. And Isaiah had the Lord touch his lips, right? And give him the, the mantle of prophetic authority to preach to, Isaiah, uh, to the people in, his, in Isaiah's day 
in, in Israel. Okay, I had some other passages. Lois, if you could look up um, John 1 and verse 14. And uh, Roger, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. I've got several passages here. Isaiah 42, 6 through 9. And then after you read that, verse 16 as well. Okay, uh, John 1 and verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, I, I've mentioned that one quite a few times. I, uh, I guess it wouldn't hurt to say it again. That's an allusion to Mount Sinai and to Moses in the Exodus. Okay? Because the Word dwelt in the Greek means tabernacled or pitched his tent. So that's an allusion to the tabernacle in Exodus. And the beholding of the glory is an allusion to Moses on Mount Sinai, beholding the glory of God. And grace and truth is an allusion to um, loving kindness and truth that God spoke as his name and his nature on Isaiah, uh, back on Mount Sinai. So, uh, John is just rich. That is fabulous. I love the Gospel of John. So does Ryan. And it's just fabulously loaded with allusions to Moses and the Old Testament. And when you see that, it just comes alive. I remember the first time I heard that. Uh, when I, well, I studied John in Bible college in the early 70s. And then I studied, uh, when I studied under Dr. Block at seminary in the early 90s, and he brought this out as well. It's just, it's just the Bible just comes alive. And I think the more you can see these allusions in the New Testament to the Old, you, see, you appreciate the, the, that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. I don't think any people, any person uninspired could figure this out and put all that in there. Uh, you see it also in, in Revelation. We were talking about that in the radio yesterday a little bit. We were talking about the churches of Revelation on Jan's show. But I was reading toward the end of Revelation... And I'm preaching through those uh, plagues now. And, and, and you see the frogs, the hail, and these plagues that are poured out on the end, uh, at the very, very end of the age when God brings judgment. So it's showing us that the plagues on Egypt are just a little foretaste of worse ones that are going to come on the whole world where God judges the world, just like he judged Egypt. Now, uh, Isaiah 42 is a fabulous section to know about to see the gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42 is one of the more profound messianic prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, Roger's going to read that for us. Isaiah 42, and you're starting with what? Six. Verse 6. 6 through 9 and then 16. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Nor Stop pray. right there. Do you mind stopping? Nope. 
No, yeah, no, you have no choice. <laughs> We're going to shut the mic off on you. No, no, just kidding. No, I, I wanted to, before you read further, there, just look at the continuity. Look at the themes that he was reading. Uh, that First of all, Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And so there is a prophecy about Messiah. He's going to what? Open blind eyes. And there, I believe, uh, we, were, we were looking at that in Luke, that there, there's a twofold reference that literally Christ heals some blind people, but more profoundly, he opens every blind eye of the sinner who repents. Okay? And so, and then it says, my name, the passage you read talks about the name of the Lord, and it talks about the glory of God. So his name means his, his person and, and character qualities and glory. And so it's the glory of God to open the eyes of blind sinners. And that's why I'm so excited about the gospel. <laughs> Are you excited about the gospel? <laughs> and so, okay, now you can read some more. <laughs> Nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And in 16. In 16. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. Wow. So God promises to bring light to the blind, to lead them in a new way. And it specifically says in in Isaiah 42 that he's going to do that for Gentiles. Now, for some reason... It was so hard for the Jewish people and even the disciples and the apostles in, in the Gospels and Acts. It was so hard for them to believe that could be. Even though it was their scriptures that predicted it. All the way back to Genesis 12:3, and then Isaiah. It says it over and over again that God's going to bless the nations. But they just couldn't get it. And even when Jesus told them that's what they're gonna, was going to happen, clearly. And he, and he did some mighty acts to foreshadow this. When, for example, as... We saw in Luke, he heals the servant of the centurion. Or you have the Syrophoenician woman who had great faith. And the centurion had great faith. And in John 12, some Greeks come to Jesus. And that's the turning point in the narrative of John. As soon as these Greeks come in John 12, suddenly the focus goes on to the cross. And he's on his way to the cross. Uh, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He says there in John 12. And so uh, it's, it's there. And, of course, we see it because we know we're Gentiles, most of us. And, and we've been converted and we can see this. But they had a hard time getting it. And remember how hard it was that finally, it, when Peter was uh, to get the, the early church to even preach to the Gentiles, God had to do a series of miracles. Peter saw the vision coming down. You know, the sheet with all the unclean. And, and the Lord told him to eat. Angels came. Angels came to Cornelius. Angels came to Peter. Peter came to Cornelius. And, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll preach to them as long as I'm here. And the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles, and they're converted. And then Peter said, Then I remembered the words of the Lord Jesus, saying that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so Peter baptized in water these Gentiles, and the church then now had a mission to the Gentiles. But it was predicted in Isaiah chapter 42. In fact, I've, actually, I've called that section in Isaiah 42 the Great Commission 
in the Old Testament. <laughs> so a fabulous, fabulous section of Scripture. Um, Kathleen, if you could read... Um, oh, I was just talking about... This. No, that's too much. I'll, 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 I'll read that. If you can read Ephesians 5.8, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's funny because I had that John 12 passage part of it in my notes here that I was just alluding to. So much Bible, so little time. <laughs> yeah, Ephesians 5.8 when you get to that one. For you were formerly... For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Yeah, so you were formerly darkness, now you're light. So light is used to describe Christians. A Christian is a person characterized by having seen the light, so it is literally the light of the gospel, and it's characterized by light, and it's called to walk in the light. <laughs> so that's what it's like to be a Christian. Now, John 12, I was going to... John 12, uh, there's a little extended passage that I want us to turn to together. John 12, 37. This was after the, the stuff I was alluding to earlier where uh, he talks about being lifted up. And the Greeks came to him, verse 20. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, verse 23. Grain of earth falls into the earth and dies, and so on. And then, but let's look now at verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. Now this talks about his own people that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, quote, Lord, who has re- believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this cause they could not believe. That's a theme in John, by the way, this idea of ability. Uh, the, uh, the Gospel of John, if, not, if you didn't believe in inability through any other way, you would if you read the Gospel of John in Greek. Because he uses the word for dunamis, ability, or lack of ability, a number of times, being unable. And what John is saying is that it takes a miracle for God to save somebody. All right? It takes an act of God to do this. But here's what it says. For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I healed them. Verse 40. Now, it's interesting that Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts all cite the same verse. Now, think about it. Now, this one kind of people look at it and they go, oh, man, why would God do that? Well, it's called a judgment of hardening. I'm going to talk about that when I preach on Pharaoh. Uh, there's a, uh, a bell back there. Um, but here, here's the deal. Why is it in... All four Gospels at Acts. Well, there, the, for one thing, remember that the Gospels were written to an audience. All right? And the audience was the early church. Some, uh, and also it has apologetic value, the Gospels do. 
Why is Christianity the way it is? And especially in, in light of, of Judaism, the Jewish people that were around in the first century would, had questions. They go, here's a question. If you Christians are, are right, and this Jesus of Nazareth was really the Jewish Messiah, then why didn't he save Israel? And why didn't the Jewish leaders believe in him? And why were so few Jewish people converted? And why are the majority of the Christians Gentiles? Why is that true? That's a real question in the first century. You tell me why that's true. And you know how they answered it? By citing Isaiah 6. Because God blinded them as an act of judgment, uh, of hardening, for not listening to him. That's what it says. And I, I, you can't ignore it if it's cited five times. Yes. Yeah, there's um, those two verses in John chapter 6. Uh, the one is in verse 44 where it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And You know, you notice it doesn't say... You know, no one may come to me, which is like permission. No one can. Is Nobody a word. has the ability. Exactly. Can is a word of ability. Yeah, dunamis. Yeah. And he goes in and, and also repeats that in um, verse 65. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him to him by my father. Yeah, and in, in, in between those verses, what happened was everybody got offended and left. Okay. And so there's an apologetic point being made. And I learned this, uh, uh, Ryan and I were golfing yesterday, late afternoon, and we were re- reminding each other how we met in, in seminary, in a, in a class in seminary. And we had a teacher that we just loved who, who would, would teach us how to read. Literally, to really know theology, learn how to read. To know the Bible, learn how to read. The gospel writers are using the conventions of language to tell their story. And, and, and their meaning is God's meaning because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So why is that? See, that's what Dr. Versifant taught us. Why is that there? Ask why it's there. Why would, why would this be in John? Nobody has the ability to come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Why would he say such a thing as that? To explain why they didn't come. In other words, it was an apologetic thing because otherwise it could be said, well, Jesus just wasn't very good at attracting people. Or maybe he really wasn't the Messiah. Yes. So then why, why did God not call the Jews to him? He did call them. And they, did they have free will to come to him then? And they chose not to? Well, they actually, their free will was in bondage to sin. Okay, and so was ours. That's a very good question. And he, he wants to talk. But the point here is that when anybody comes, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, it's because of the work of God's grace, not because of our moral superiority. That's the point they're trying to make. And also to defend Christianity against the charge that Jesus really was a failure. I mean, if he can't even get his own people to come to him, what kind of Messiah is that? And, and the answer that the gospel writers gave was, they were under the judgment of hardening, so they were blinded to him. But then some did come, and I'm going to read about that, because even some of the Pharisees came. Okay, yes. So that, that goes back again to, to uh, Exodus 33:19, the second half. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Yes, and that's, that's, by the way, is quoted by Paul right. in Romans 9, that same passage. Is that... Is that starting to, to make people make well starting to make me think about elect, the elect? 
Well, that's that certainly thing. related, Doctor. Now, I, it seems like this always comes up. I, I've been, uh, it came up this week again. Somebody was asking me about it. Sincere questions, and I love the questions, all right? I'm not offended by questions, ever, all right? I, I may get offended by something like somebody stepping on my golf ball but, or, <laughs> or beating me, but I won't get offended by a question because questions are from people that want to know what God said, all right? And so the question, and I explained it to a young man who emailed me this week. The, the thing that we have to hold in balance to not be an extreme in either way, in human ability or hyper-Calvinism, you want to call it that, is the universal call and the grace of God and salvation. All right? The universal call is this. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And even in John 6 that you were citing, Robert, there's a very important passage in there that says, And the one who comes I will on no means cast out. So the truth is that anybody who's willing to come, he'll receive. Nobody will ever be turned away who comes. And the other truth is, if you do come, it was because of God, not because of you. And if you preach multiple things, you're going to have a really good theology. And if you preach one without the other, if you preach... Anybody can come by their own natural ability, then you're a Pelagian. And that's a heresy. All right? Even Rome, even Rome, if you read the Council of Trent, condemns Pelagianism as a heresy. And it's funny, some of our popular writers out there are Pelagians in America, and they don't even know it. Now, that's a, that's a heresy. Pelagianism. Anybody has the ability, so therefore, what's the implication? The ones who came are more meritorious than the ones that didn't. So that's plagiarism. So that's false. The other one is hyper-Calvinism that says God's going to save who he's going to save anyhow and uh, don't preach the universal call, but you spend your life sitting around looking at yourself trying to figure out whether you're one of the elect or not. Okay, am I one of the elect? Am I one of the elect? Am I one of the elect? And you just wait to see if it ever shows up whether you're one of the elect. No, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you know you're one of the elect. In, in this in verse of John 13, 40, it says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And then in the end it says that I should heal them. Who is the he that they're referring to? God. God. It's confusing me because they refer to it in the first part of the verse as he, and the second part of the verse is I. And so, well, it's a, because it's a quotation of Isaiah. Could you look up the Isaiah 6? We'll, we'll find the original here. Okay. Uh, and and uh, you know what? That's very, What's your name? Tom. Tom. Hi, Tom. That's, a, that's an interesting um, passage. He's going to look it up. Isaiah 6, like verse 4, 5, 6, 7. Is that I remember in Bible college, we always had these, um, in chapel, they brought in pastors to come and preach to us. Okay? And you got an interesting slice of what motivates pastors by sitting in chapel day after day. There's always a different one. And some of them came, and you could tell they were, they were grabbed internally by the passion for the gospel. And then others came and preached themselves. They'd come and say, I got ten school buses and clowns and balloons and so many people coming. And, and I was like, <laughs> And then somebody else would. In fact, in fact, the ones that always had the passion for the gospel were the missionaries, it seemed. But, but here's, they, they, a lot of times they'd preach on this, here I am, who will go? Here I am, send me. But they never preached, they never told what comes after that. When Isaiah heard what came after that, 
really? How long do I got to do this? So you read it. Okay, Robert? Okay, I'll start in verse 6. Isaiah 6, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I, here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Yeah. And then, well, read on, and he says, How long? And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return, and will be for consuming. And a terebinth tree, or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. That's the remnant. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) You know, so here I am, send me, and then you hear the story, hear what you got to do, never mind. (laughs) So I thought I was going to go preach, and everybody's going to be converted, and they're going to think I'm a great preacher. No, they're just going to be judged. And all this wickedness is going to do. But, but, and he kept reading, you know, this tree stump, you know what that is? It's a tree cut down. Do you ever have a tree in your yard that can grow from roots? You ever cut one of those down? When we bought our house in 1987, these little weeds kept coming up in our yard. And I'd spray them, and it didn't do any good. Spray, spray, spray. I don't like weeds, so I spray them. I'm a farm boy. Sorry, uh, environmentalists, but I, I spray weeds. And, um, and they kept coming up, spray them, mow them off, come up, spray. So then in 88, we had a drought, if you remember that. And remember they said, don't water your lawn, it's going to go dormant. Yeah, right. <laughs> dormant like dead as it can be. And, and so then it was dead. I had no lawn, so I I sprayed Roundup on what was left, which is crabgrass and weeds. And I, I uh, tilled up the yard to plant a new lawn, and I ran into something. So I started digging. And where all those little weeds are coming up, there was a root of a tree that was one of these kind that don't die when you cut it out. And there was, the reason it wouldn't die is there's this massive root system that was sending up what would become new trees. And I ended up having to dig, dig a huge, massive root system out of my lawn so I wouldn't have that coming up anymore. Well, that, what he's reading there, Isaiah is, is, is sent to bring this judgment of hardening, and the people are blinded so they can't see. That's the judgment of hardening. That's what God's going to do to Pharaoh in our sermon this morning. And, but it doesn't, it's never without hope because in the end it says this, it's like a tree that's going to be cut down, but the root is still alive. And this root is going to send up sprouts that will become a tree. And actually, it will become a massive tree. This is alluded to in the Gospels. And it's going to be the Messianic kingdom. And it's going to be pleasing to God. So before the tree root springs up into this massive Messianic kingdom, 
the judgment of hardening comes on the leaders of Israel. And so that passage that Robert read is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Now, can you say, oh, we, don't, we can safely ignore it. No. Uh, uh, Brian, back here. <laughs> yeah, just a quick little personal testimony on this. My heart was mega hardened up until 14 years ago. And uh, I knew nothing of nor ever looked at a New Testament. And uh, it Tell wasn't... Tell people, you're, you're Jewish, right? Correct. Yes. So it wasn't until somebody had challenged me with the New Testament and the, conju- and, and the connections to the Old Testament that it hit me and I became converted. Wow. But <laughs> I think that's true for the Jewish people as a whole. A lot of them just don't even recognize a New Testament at all. But once, if, if they could see the connections... Between the two, uh, the truth will set you free. Amen. Thank you for your testimony, Brian. Praise God. See, you were part of that stump root. (laughs) See, you got a a ministry. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm seeing a pattern here where uh, the the people are in darkness and the the truth comes. And then, uh, as as you stated here in Scripture, uh, that the leaders become hard. Yeah, uh, it seems to me you can apply that to a revolution, uh, where the people are oppressed, light comes, and uh, the leaders become hard and refuse to let the control of the people, uh, you know, re- re- relinqu- relinquish the control. You know why leaders become hard is because they have a vested interest in what is, and the leaders of Israel were hardened toward Jesus because if he was really who he said he was. They just lost their power unless they submit to him, and they don't want to submit to him. Yes. Does this relate to the blasphemy text in Matthew? where Blasphemy they, in the Holy Spirit? Yep. Where they had watched everything Christ did and, and said, attributed it to Beelzebub? Yeah, absolutely. Same concept? Yeah. They saw all of this stuff. And remember the woes? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, because if the miracles that have been done in you have been done in Chorazin, they would have repented. Or all, all the famous hardened, wicked people in Israel's history that were their enemies or, uh, said they'd repent before you did. And then, but then right after that, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you hid these things in the, from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes, because thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. And no one knows the Father but the Son and, 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 to who, and whoever the Son wills to reveal him. And then right after that verse, it says, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. That is my favorite section. And if people ask me about Calvinism and Arminianism, I sit on that section. Say, so there you, you, you got everything you want. <laughs> okay? <laughs> if you're a Calvinist, uh, you can quote the one that says, Only the ones to whom the Son wills reveal him. And if you're an Arminian, you can quote, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. This is like Matthew 11:22. Okay? Now, if you want to be biblical, quote both. <laughs> Don't choose. Okay, Marcus, yes. Just a quick comment. Um, I think isn't this, this is kind of a passage that, where we can be in danger of judging and saying that maybe God's cruel or that if this isn't what we think that he should do. Okay, thank you, Marcus. He asked, maybe somebody will think this makes God cruel, that he blinds, he does this judgment of hardening. Now, 
good question. Now, let me give you the biblical answer to that. The fact is that God is just, not cruel, just and merciful. So had God condemned all people without uh, exception, and had he not sent his son to die, he would still be a just God because the wages of sin is death. And if God executes the just punishment for sin, he's nothing more than just. But God is, according to the Bible, just and merciful. He's the justifier of the ungodly, but he does so by sending Jesus, the perfectly holy just one, to bear the punishment in, uh, on behalf of the ones he justifies. Therefore, he's both just because he executed the penalty and justifier because Jesus except took the penalty for us. All right? So uh, let me reiterate what I believe. I believe that God has issued a legitimate call for every human being to repent and believe the gospel. And it says God has furnished proof to all men, and he's he's commanding all men everywhere to repent. Paul preached in Acts 17. Come unto me, all all who are weary and heavy laden. Now, the fact is, uh, the the leaders to whom Jesus was uh, referring in Matthew 11 and 12 didn't think they were weary and heavy laden. They were the ones putting the yoke of bondage on the people. They were the ones laying out the heavy burdens. He says in Matthew 23, uh, in the same book, Matthew, he says, you, you tie up heavy loads and lay it on men, and you're not willing to lift it for a finger. And the leaders weren't going to come to Jesus and say, yeah, we're weary and heavy laden. They were the ones laying out the bondage, adding to the law, adding to the, the onion skin, you know, more, more of the oral interpretations. And so Jesus is saying, uh, in, in vis-a-vis these leaders, come to me and I'll give you rest. Shabbat. He's going to give Shabbat rest to anybody that comes. Anybody. And the one who comes, he says, I will no way cast out. Anybody who comes. But if you did come, don't ever think that you're morally superior to some lost sinner. Because God was, he shone light, light into your dungeon. And you never know when he's going to do that. So preach the gospel to everybody. Yes. I was uh, studying the Word one day, and I was getting into, I was looking into the word confession in the Bible, and I uh, searched every uh, occurrence of the word confession, trying to find out about the confession of sin. And what I found astonished me in that uh, way more times when, when the word confession is used in, in God's holy Word, it's not talking about confessing your sins. It's saying that confessing that Jesus is Lord. Yes. Okay? You're right. So I think what the church today needs a sermon on is what does that mean? What does the word Lord mean? Now, like you said earlier, in the beginning was the word, and the word was of God, and the word word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? The word is Jesus Christ. Yes. And the Bible is the word of God. Yes. Okay? So you need to fall in line with what Jesus is telling you to do in his holy word. That's Lord. If you're not doing that, then your confession of him as Lord is not genuine. So you can't just pick and choose what you like in this book. You're either falling in line and proclaiming Jesus as Lord by doing so, or you're not confessing him as Lord. Amen. Thank you. That's good. Um, 
I'm going to preach on that a little bit too today because Pharaoh was willing to have have God as Savior but didn't want him as Lord. Pharaoh. Uh huh. <laughs> okay, now, well, okay, let me get back to this. Robert read Isaiah 6 and noticed there was this judgment of hardening that's cited in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, but there's always hope. In the end, of, in, it went to that stump root and the remnant. God always has his remnant. Do you believe that? Does he have a remnant? He's always going to save a remnant. Now, let me go back to John. Let me finish my citation. John, remember I was in John 12? I never finished that. Okay, somebody distracted me. Who did that? Okay, no, (laughs) probably my fault. Remember verse 40? He has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So that's why Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leadership. But look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So uh, Isaiah saw Christ and preached of him. And look at what happened. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They feared man. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Let me read on. Uh, 44. And Jesus cried out. So here's these leaders seeing the miracles. Yeah, I think this is the one, but I'm not going to say anything because I like the synagogue approval better than the approval of God. So that's not confessing unto salvation, is it? They're not confessing him. Now let's go on. Uh, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. And I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. So, look at, the, look at the balance, if you want to call it that. On the one hand, it says he blinded their eyes, but on the other hand, it says if you believe in him, you're not going to stay in darkness. So that's the truth. That's the truth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are stepping into the light. And you'll not be in darkness. And nobody can come and say, well, God blinded my eyes, so I can't. Because Paul addresses that in Romans 9, and he rejects it as being insolent. Who are you to say, talk to God <laughs> like that? Um, so ponder these things, beloved. You know, I realize, I realize that it, sometimes it just kind of strains our brain a little bit. Thing. All right, God is calling everybody to repent and believe the gospel, but God blinded some so they, they, can't, they won't, I should say. I'm just, I have, I have a moral obligation before God to teach you the whole counsel of God. And should I leave certain things out because those things that I leave out are the things that are not popular, I'm going to have to answer to God, and he'll judge me. Because teachers come under stricter judgment. So if you ever catch me skipping something because I don't like it, you come and rebuke me because I need to repent and preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, The popular and not the popular parts, it's not my gospel to play around with. It's only mine to proclaim. Uh, The terms have already been determined by God. That's like Isaiah being called by God. I wouldn't want to go preach until the cities were desolate. I'd rather preach and have a revival, wouldn't you? (laughs) Here I am, send me. But God is going to do what he, what he wants to do through us. And 
uh, that's all he, we can do is, is serve him on his terms. I had a couple of uh, citations quick. I got two minutes. My favorite, Mr. Garland here. I got you. Got to have him. Fourteen and fifteen. It says here. Uh, quoting Garland, Paul began this section by asking, "Who is sufficient for the task?" No one is, but God, who is the only source of light, wisdom, and stamina, made him sufficient and gave him a ministry more glorious than that of Moses, whose face was alight with the reflected glory of God. He concludes this section by affirming that his ministry reflects the light of the new age. By the way, every time you see the word new age, it doesn't mean somebody believes in the new age. Uh, the, the term new age was used in theological writings to talk about the messianic age long before anybody invented new age. So it's not capitalized. It means the messianic age. And, and I've seen that 100 years ago already. Okay? So uh, reading on the new creation and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul must next explain how this glorious ministry can be incarnated in weakness and suffering because some in Corinth say no glory about him. His voluntary acceptance of dishonor does not impair the glory of his ministry. Uh, Paul does not try to cover up his bodily frailty, but insists that through it God is better able to convey the true comfort and glory of the gospel. Despite appearances, the wasting away of his outward body, tribulation, distress, uh, and suffering, he along with all Christians are being transformed. So Paul has this light, and he carries it about in an earthen vessel, which we'll look at next week, and the light of the glory is from God. And so, dear ones, whether you're young or old, whether you're strong or weak, uh, whether you're frail or robust, it doesn't matter as far as the gospel is concerned because the power and the light and the glory is from God and not from us. And, and uh, concerning our discussion of John 6 and John 12 and John 1 and, uh, and Isaiah 6, be assured of this thing. That if you and I proclaim the gospel according to the terms laid out in the Bible, God will use that to save whoever is going to be saved. And that he will do whether in our mind we think there's such a thing as an election or in our mind we don't think there's any such thing. Because what is, it's not what's in our mind that saves people. It's the content of the message. Right? So whether somebody holds to one theology or another, if that person faithfully proclaims the terms of the new covenant, God will use that to save everybody who's going to be saved. And that group of people, the saved, will be identical whether you believe in open theism, which is a rank heresy, but that, means, that says that God doesn't even know the future himself, or if you believe in foreknowledge, that God looks ahead and sees who's going to accept him and then therefore put themselves in the book of light or life, or whether you believe that God ordained who was in the book of life before the foundation of the world. What, whichever of those views that you believe, I assure you that the same group of people are going to be in heaven at the end. We're not going to change that. But we're going to proclaim the truth. And so, by doing so, we get to participate in seeing God use us. And isn't that a glorious thing? This morning, stifle yourself, Brian. Oh, oh it was Sam. That's okay then. All right. No. I saw him with a chair. All right. One of our deacons. No, no, no. He's a deacon. You can't hit him. He's a deacon.
All right. Um, this morning, we're going to uh, be preaching in Exodus on the uh, four plagues, the fourth, fifth, sixth, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh plague in Exodus. So help with the chairs. Oh, look at the treat we got out here today. All right. <laughs> 